Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to get to listen to the first of the talks that I've received from the 2014 Palenque Norte Lecture set were held at the recent Burning Man event, from which I received a postcard that was sent from my dear friends Naomi and Joe, uh, who were also the last ones to send me a postcard from the playa two years ago. And the reason that I mention this is that during the times that I went to the burn myself, I was only able to make it to the post office one time to mail cards to my grandkids. It, uh, it sounds strange, but it takes a great deal of concentration and effort just to send a card from Black Rock City. Well, at least it was for me. And so I truly treasure these cards from Burning Man. Thanks for thinking of me. Now, the talk that we're about to listen to features Bruce Damer, and I hope that later on you'll give yourself a little time to think about the vastly different approaches to the psychedelic experience that Bruce speaks about when contrasted to last week's talk about plant medicines. And while I don't have any definitive ideas about these different approaches to enhance consciousness, I do think that we should all give a little thought to the spectrum that is covered between us male geeks and the Gaian view that we also subscribe to. It's really interesting when you think about these different approaches to altered states of consciousness. To me, the most fascinating part is that, well, they all seem to get you uh, somewhere near to the same place. What's that all about, do you think? Anyway, uh, I should quit talking about something that you haven't had a chance to listen to yet, so let me get out of the way and uh, turn on the recording that was made on a hot August night in 2014 on the playa at Burning Man. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Palenque Norte. My name is Ken Adams. It's my pleasure and honor to introduce my good friend Bruce Damon tonight, who's going to talk about the entheogenic singularity and pay his tribute to Sasha Shulgin. And uh, I just want to say, Bruce is an extraordinary individual that combines science and magic and a very free spirit, and it's a pleasure to be here with him, and I hope you enjoy it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. I want to also acknowledge that Ken Adams uh, has produced a film called The Terrence McKenna Experience that will be shown here just after midnight. And I encourage you to come and lie down and look at this thing. This is, I think, a whole new movement in art films for the psychedelic community. There's nothing like this. So it'll be coming coming your way. What you're seeing, what you're seeing above here is the wonderful artwork of Tom Riddell, who's been running a lot of the recording here. He's a our, our incredible supporter of this community in terms of capturing the voice and the video. And this is his work. And what we hope to do, this is our first experiment in trying to uh, see if we can match uh, what is kind of emanating through voice and to match uh, what is happening up there. So, or And if you're starting to get bored with me, you just lie back and space out. So, 
which can happen. I mean. And Tom, how's our recording? Is it uh, all A-OK? Great. Well, I what I want to do is acknowledge an unseen presence in the room that is actually seen. And uh, uh, he was here earlier. He's sort of, he's taken off a little bit. And you'll notice a, a cardboard display of Terrence McKenna sitting there with his hand out like this, looking over like this with a microphone just like this. And we are here today doing Palenque Norte because of this man. This man's voice, when it echoed into the cyberdelic ether in the early 80s, no one knew, uh, basically, as Dennis McKenna said, oh, there we are. So here he is. Here he is, right there, doing his thing, his thang for for some of you. This is the pool around Palenque, the, the hotel in Palenque, Mexico, where they held the Entheobotany seminars. And Terence held forth, and many others did. Sasha and Anne came to it. This is why we have this here. This is Palenque Norte, the northern version, the northern migration of the Palenque uh, ethnobotany seminars we, that uh, Lorenzo Haggerty reestablished in 2003 here at Burning Man, starting speakers at Burning Man. There was nothing before that. We started it. This is the original knowledge, vision, voice transfer on the playa, and it's cranking on. And it, most of these uh, talks go out into the Psychedelic Salon podcast. This talk will probably go into the salon or my own podcast, The Levity Zone. So rolling back a little bit, um, why are we talking about singularities? Jonathan just did a wonderful talk about singularities and their history and their meaning to us. And what I'm going to present to you tonight is a vision for a singularity that may happen in our lifetime, that may be the most extraordinary thing that does happen to human beings that I think is viable. And this comes from 25 years of building technology, from 20 years of collecting technology. I've collected computers from the 19th century when they were hand-cranked calculators all the way up through the 90s in my barn. I have you know, working computers that are as old as me, which is quite old. Um, and I've tracked this thing. I have supercomputers, cray supercomputers, pieces of the original ARPANET, the original Apple prototypes, the first software for the Apple II, all this. I've been tracking and internalizing this. I've been interviewed. I've interviewed over 2,000 people to figure out where the digital world came from. Then I started to collect the cyber psychedelic history. I started to internalize the life of of Terence McKenna. And Terence McKenna and I overlapped for about three short years in the late 90s. And Terence McKenna and I did a kind of singularity exercise for him. His, his desire at the time was to come into my world, which was avatars and multi-user uh, cyberspace worlds, super low res, right? This is not Oculus Rift territory. This is something else. But I can tell you that 
when there was one week where we changed places, he went into my reality, became an avatar. He called it Zone Ghost, by the way. And it was a it was a bug-eyed alien. For a while, he chose a bug-eyed green lawnmower as his avatar, <laughs> going into a very trippy, tryptamine-inflected world. And so he, he, he did that. And then he provided the gateway for me to go into his world. And then we compared notes. We compared notes. And it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. I remember sitting in the house in Hawaii when when we had done this thing and we had compared notes and I asked Terrence, what did you think of these worlds? What did you think of the experience, the, the felt experience of being in an avatar space with your fans, your 30 fans, which was his typical audience size? And he said, it was not unlike DMT. It was not unlike DMT. That's a very Terrence way of saying it, but it was an opening. And so I explained to him my experience on his medicine that he provided me, and it was my personal singularity. And I won't reveal that in this talk, but this is the sort of tap root of where this all started. And then that night, Terrence turned to us, my friend Jim and I, in the house and said, you know, I'm having dreams I can't explain. They're so weird. They're so strange. And he looked, you know, his brow was furled. And Jim and I looked at each other and said, to, you know, voicelessly, this is a big deal. If Terrence McKenna is having dreams that are truly disturbing to him. And what was about to happen to Terrence McKenna was a personal singularity, a personal eschaton called a glioblastoma multiforme, a very rare brain cancer. And there was a massive tumor in this man's brain that was about to erupt. It was about to announce itself. And we were catching him just before the eruption. It was a personal singularity. It was roaring toward Terrence McKenna. This was the spring of 1999. He went on one more road tour came back to Hawaii, and then one morning this thing announced its arrival. And the man, the violence of this was horrendous. His nausea, his pain, his partner at the time dragged him to the pickup truck and got him off the mountain. And they scanned his brain, and there was a mushroom-shaped tumor in there. And that proceeded to not respond to gamma knife surgery and all these other things, and Terrence was, was going to wink out. We were going to see him go. So, you know, instead of our plans to go to Esalen together, to put our heads together, to continue the work, uh, he was suddenly gone. It was really shocking. It was really stunning. And so in the next four years, we started to put him back together, Humpty Dumpty, and put him back together and get cassettes and rebuild Terrence. But one of the things that Terrence had told me was very clear at, toward the end. And even after that, I heard his voice, which was, I asked him one time standing in front of the refrigerator, this is after he passed, you know, I'm about to make the statement that I'm about to start to tell my own story and before I can make that statement, before my brain forms it, I hear the voice, so get going. So that was 2005. The deal I made with him was 
yes, I'll get going, but we need to treat, we need to do you in 2012. We need to do uh, your life, and we did it, the Terrence 2012. So, in a sense, what this talk is, is carrying on the legacy of two guys, Terrence McKenna and Sasha Shulgin, how to put them together. They both had concepts and tools of opening the mind. Terence had this great vision of a forward escape for humanity, a great destiny for humanity. Because what is our destiny? Is our destiny to bump the stock prices of oligarchs, oil companies, and, and young oligarchs, internet search companies? Is that the purpose of humanity? No. You know, Terence used to say, uh, if, if I can emulate him, he used to say, we haven't got a clue what the human enterprise is all about. So this meeting tonight is tr trying to find a clue what we're all about, where we're going. And what I want to do is to start out, and that was all preambles to where this came from. Um, let me start out, and then I'll, then I'll race into the... Uh, into the thing. So this is Sasha Shulgin's report of his first mescaline experience. I don't know if you've, you've many of you may have seen this during notes from his passing. Sasha wrote that the experience had been brought about by a fraction of a gram of a white solid because he had made the mescaline. This is 1960 at Dow Chemical. But then in no way whatsoever could it be argued that these memories had been contained within the white solid? I understood that our entire universe is contained in the mind and the spirit. Think about that. This is Sasha Shulgin, 1960. We may choose not to find access to it. We may even deny its existence. But it is indeed there inside us and there are chemicals that can catalyze its availability. So this is Sasha Shulgin launching for the first time and deciding what his career would be. And this is his message to us from 1960. And this is largely before <clears throat> anything really got started. And I say to you that what Sasha wrote is the great enterprise. It is the great project of being. It is this idea of the entheogenic singularity. So listen to what he said. A universe and spirit is inside us. What does that mean? So rolling forward, here we are in 2014. What is going on? You know, what is going on? Why is Burning Man powering itself up so incredibly beautifully? Every year the energy is higher. Every year the art is better. Every, every year the synchronies are fan, more fantastic. And how many of you have been out on the playa and you've met people and had amazing connections with people? Just boom, 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 right? Everybody has. Like, it's just magical. There's something going on here. There's something going on here. So what I'm about to propose to you, I'm proposing this because I'm hoping that in this room sit uh, some younger people that will actually make this thing go, that will make this thing happen. So here's, here's, here's uh, the first shot. 
how many of you have had an experience, and I'm not going to privilege psychedelics with this, because you can have entheogenic visionary experiences without psychedelics. I do it all the time. I call it endogenous or endo-tripping. I've done it for 30 years. I avoided psychedelics the longest time till I met Terrence. And I kept, even after I met Terrence and I was trying, tasting the brews, I kept a firewall blocking the psychedelic access to my endogenous tripping visioneering system. And only last October did I remove that firewall and let the whole thing play. And that's the subject of another talk. But when I did that, I experienced the vision that I'm sharing tonight. So this is, this is an elucidation of that. So how many of you in this room have had an experience so powerful that you're seeing the shard of violet light coming from the cosmos, the, the whole thing? And suddenly you're, or you're unfolding on the infinite plane as a being, as a true full being. Or that you're unified and you're lost, you're, you're one with the entire cosmos and you're inside the implosion, the explosion of the singularity. How many have had these experiences? How many had the experience and forgot about it and only remembered it later? You know, you fucking forget about these things. How you know that's a cosmic joke, right? That that we forget that we had the most profound experience that a being can have in the cosmos, and we forget it. You know, that's a great joke played on us. You know, I you know, during a yoga breathwork session, I started to enter one of those spaces. Like, what is that? Oh, I've been there before. Oh, two or three times, and suddenly it flooded back. It was a memory that was contained inside of basically a personal singularity, basically that high plane. Well, I think that starting in 2014, we have the opportunity to actually build a technology to reach those spaces much more easily because we're hitting them in a haphazard fashion. And we kind of glance off them or we go into them and we kind of then we slide out. I always call it being pulled at the waistcoat, at the westcoat, like this, this funny Romulan. This is, by the way, a Romulan uh, mid-level manager's uh, suit and tie. Can you see this? Isn't this crazy? And uh, so I was on Romulus and... I had to go mufti and I had to attend a business meeting and they just like, oh, okay, get it out of the closet. This is this is it. So, <laughs> and their coffee is really strong, by the way, out there. Um, so, uh, so how can we achieve those exquisite highs and sustain them? I think that's the next frontier. That's a new frontier. And I think that we can do it with the following. During the final meeting I had with Sasha Shulgin, we had a meeting around the lunch table. This was two weeks before he passed to create a cannabis technology consortium and conference. And he was listening in and all those sorts of things. And I, I knelt down with him and told him about what we'd just done and, and that, in fact, we were going to take the money from this cannabis technology effort and pump it into his research. And in my mind, and, I, and, and he said, great, that sounds like a great idea, because this is the way he was ebullient, you know, always. And in my mind, when he said that, 
started spinning a little shiny object. And I was like, whoa, what am I seeing? And what I was seeing is something that I now call the Shulgin chip. The Shulgin chip. And that unfolded a whole endogenous trip in my mind. It's like the Shulgin chip is in space and it's floating and what is it? And it came close to me and it was like, oh, it has. it's a million channel chemical factory using microfluidics. And what is it doing? It's diving into my skin. It's diving subcutaneous, you know, under my shoulder. So I have a chip on the shoulder now, you know. And what is this? And it's a thin film thing. What is it doing? It just burrowed its way in like some kind of bizarre Star Trek episode of the 60s, you know. And this is all in an endo, like, whoa. And then I realized, you know, sitting on the table next to Sasha was the Shulgin Index. And it was lighting up. And the chip was lighting up. And I said, oh, this chip is making everything in that index. Well, and it's taking blood serum going through its factories. And I know about this because we're doing a microfluidics design for origin of life called the Genesis engine. So it's been sort of implanted in my mind. So the Shulgin chip is making everything in the Shulgin index. Oh. Then another piece of the endo world came. Another piece came. It's like, why is, why is this happening? And suddenly I'm seeing an fMRI in front of my, of my mind of brain areas shrinking and growing and and fantastical uh, threads. And I'm realizing I'm looking at my friend Tom Ray's model of mental organs. He's a fantastic researcher in Oklahoma who believes that serotonin 7 is consciousness, the serotonin receptors, and 2 is a buffer, and that these are distinct organs in the mind that go up and down all the time. And I said, well, why am I seeing this in space and then I had another vision which was there was a sheet of wires on my head that was doing real-time brain scanning. I was like, whoa! And it was projecting in my eyes through augmented reality, scanning laser on my cornea. Boom, 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 boom. When I was seeing my brain activity. Oh! And then I realized, oh, I don't like the way that this is going this trip, but I can talk to the Shulgin chip and change what it's emitting. And now I'm cruising into another space. I'm cruising into another space. Oh, and I watch my serotonin 7 rise. Consciousness is opening, and I go, wow. So on one little little screen, this is like the ultimate mods from World of Warcraft, right? You're seeing your brain activity displayed in super high res and you're mentally willing the chip to start producing the next tryptamine, phenylalanine, whatever, thousands of chemicals that are going to the receptors in real time and you're and you're starting to you're starting to gain altitude. Gain altitude. And you're having your visionary experience at the same time. But you're managing the entire process. And then another thing popped in, which was, you know, Terrence McKenna used to talk about the overmind. Do you remember this? He talked about the overmind. And I think Ken, Ken caught that maybe in one piece of the, the film. And Terrence had this concept of this mega mind out there somehow that was mediating our experiences. 
And then I realized um, this, this brain that's in this one side of the screen that's showing the state of my brain, oh, there's another one behind it. What is that? That's the combined brain in cyberspace of other people who are in a similar trip. So my brain scan is being shot wirelessly through through cyberspace to populate an overbrain, a cyber overmind. And those people are doing their journeys. And you're cruising with them. So your, your brain state is going like this, flying like a flock of seagulls up to where they are. And their brain state is talking to your brain state. And their brain state is flowing down into your shulgin chip because you say, okay, I'll just opt in, I'll push accept. And when I push accept, it means that the overmind's now driving me. I, I trust, do you trust this overmind? Yes, no. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay, I'll, today I'll trust the overmind. What the overmind is, is people with a similar intention to reach the, the violet shard high space, that particular journey, and there may be a million of them, have opted in to this system that will guide them there. And so the psychedelic, the drugs are going in, the overmind is talking to everybody, and it's, it's launching a bolus of people into this high state. Now, of course, where do you go from here? And this reminds me of the New Yorker cartoon where there's two monks sitting against a wall, and one monk says, where do we, you know, they're meditating. One monk says, where do we go from here? And the other monk said, we don't go anywhere from here. Now, it may not be exactly the case, because here's where we may go. If, if, if these people or this system comes into being, and I'm calling it the launch toward, it's an ascension system. I'm calling this the entheogenic singularity. Why? Because it's an empathogenic singularity, it's a healing singularity, it's a human linking singularity. It isn't one person sitting there having this profound thing and then trying to put words into it. It's a million people, it's 10 million people, it's a whole sw swath of humanity, it's, it's all of Burning Man in 2039 that are sailing into this space and, and they are the space that they're getting is the high space that we see shards of, but that's their baseline. They're going from there. That's, that, that's their launch point. Where do you go from there? Where do we go from here? I'll, I'll give a little bit of a hint. It's possible that we, t we can't possibly know. It's like you can't write about those spaces, so how can we write about where we're going? Well, in ayahuasca ceremony, when you get into what James O'Rock calls the tryptamine palace, have you? How many of you been in an ayahuasca ceremony? How many have been there when it's kind of the peak has happened? The people are through their dishwasher, through their processing, and then suddenly the room seems to be filled with energy, and every little burp and fart and piece of ikaro and whatnot is echoing in a chamber, and everybody's in this palace been there I think it's like that when you experience that and everything is totally alien and totally weird what I see when I'm in those spaces and I was just in Peru with Dennis McKenna and we were in that space in the high Andes with a beautiful shaman a powerful shaman 
I looked up and I saw this dome over us, you know, sort of like the dome world of the elves, but this was ayahuasca, the Madre's dome. And I looked through and there was this shimmering kind of domic surface and up there was the cosmos. And I go, whoa, that's the liminal boundary. Our minds, because we're, we're in a group, have, have pushed this bubble, this boundary, and the cosmos is just above there. And the Madre is, is, is basically got her wings out protecting us because that thing is so powerful that she's protecting the little monkey minds from getting exposure. But it's just there. So I stood up and I said, I'd like to just get a little bit of seeing through the dome. And then this shining thing opened and it was just unbelievable. And then the Madre closed the door. So I think that's a singularity. That's an entheogenic group, genic singularity that's happening when we do these things in groups. And I think that that is the next phase of this whole work. Now, what, what happens when you can see the cosmos through the veil? What are you doing? I believe that what you're doing is your mind is so turned on. I think you, you may have heard other speakers talking about the Akashic field. You know, did somebody, some of you go to James's presentation on the Akashic field? I believe from studying quantum dynamics that if your brain is so excited you create uncertainty in the, the pathways of the electrons through the, through the mind. When you create a slight uncertainty, because this thing is so overcharged, you get a bloom of potential future paths. These are called Feynman sum-over-history blooms. And these sums-over-history cause a unification of the whole neuronal bundle. When that happens, this is the neat trick. So... Your brain is hyper-turned on. This is my explanation for why we, why we see the ineffable, why we see the face of God. It's so hyper-turned on that the electrons are like Volkswagen Beetles going on the L.A. freeway system in 1972, and when there's an earthquake that, sh- that ra- rocks the Southland, what happens to a Volkswagen Beetle? You know, if you've v- driven a Beetle, it pops into neutral, Right? It pops into neutral. It's still rolling, and it'll bounce off the guardrails, and the electron's still traveling, but there's uncertainty. And the uncertainty gives you these blooms, and that's a, what I believe is the flash. And when the flash collapses, it's a collapse of a wave function, collapse of all these potential quantum pathways, it collapses all across the neuronal bundle. That's the long tail. What does that long tail give you? That long tail gives you gives you the access to the ineffable, because suddenly the electron actually could go backwards. It's potentiated. Its its potential pathways are now infinite. It could go backwards. It doesn't, but it's uncertain for a moment. But suddenly the brain, when you trace through your brain through all those synapses and the synaptic gaps, they're potentiated in a different way than in normal waking consciousness. Guess what? Those pathways through the brain, guess how many there are? Can anyone guess the number of pathways through, through if you can go backwards and forwards? Put a, throw a number out. Gazillion? A, a, somebody said a fuckzillion the last time. 
I think it's probably that number. It's actually those pathways, those individual strings, outnumber the subatomic particles that make up the universe by a large number, by a very large number. What does this mean? Well, in, in terms of the way quantum d- dynamics works, your brain now has distinct pathways that outnumber the size of the universe. Your brain is in an information system is bigger than the whole cosmos. What does this mean? Well, if, if you follow what they're working in on Bell's theorem, non-local interactions across space and, and time, that if you have a string through your mind, another string through your mind, another string through your mind, an informational transceiver may be set up so that it can resonate with the dust particle in the ashtray of the alien 7-Eleven smokers area in Zebel Gunubi, that particle. Or the, you know, the uh, exhaust plume of the launch of the alternate Apollo in the alternate Earth somewhere uh, where they're sending, uh, you know, tripping astronauts to the moon or something. You know, all these things. So, My belief is that the turned-on mind, whether it be through psychedelics, meditation, near-death experience, all of that, when you are suddenly encountered with the ineffable, with the totality that's coming rushing at you, the the non-dual experience, that you are experiencing contact with the totality. It is the face of God, the mind of God. It's the real deal. Your brain is reverberating the whole cosmos. And what's coming into you, whether it be alien spacecraft or all this stuff that you never could imagine in your wildest dreams, and Terence described this, what you're seeing is the alien spacecraft. It's the real deal. And we're resonating with realities that are basically carpeting our minds with their texture through your filters. So if you've been raised, you know, Catholic, it'll be through Catholic filters. If you're a nerd like Terrence that read a lot of science fiction, it's through the filters, but it's still powerful and alien and real and felt. So what? Do, coming back and concluding this, what happens when humanity does this incredible Shulgin chip trick where we turn on 10 million people's minds and, and cyberspace guides it? And these people are now sailing up past that point where they're just individually turned on. They're going to, that bolus of people, that torus of people is going to start to reverberate with the cosmos. Wobble, 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 reverberate, reverberate, reverberate. What happens when you're doing this? I believe that this is childhood's end. It's what Jonathan was talking about. We will turn on Big Daddy in some way. We will fulfill the destiny of the cosmos, which is, what is that? The cosmos exploded in its multitude enormously to create enough complexity and enough hugeness to allow this to happen, to allow itself to be observed and resonated with into being. And that we we can do this. If, our, if, if us monkeys don't succumb to the technology, the snake, the oligarch, all those dark forces, like in a Hollywood thriller, the car chase, right? At the end, we may be able to do the thing, which is to come to unity with the totality 
as a species and turn it on and make reason and meaning for the cosmos and all existence. So that's uh, that's my uh, vision for this thing. And uh, I think it's a worthy project. And if anyone has a, a funding idea <laughs> or a technology idea, but think about that. So every time you feel yourself entering that space, you are one of the few people, the, the pioneers. Perhaps 2,000 years ago, there were a few people that did that. Maybe Jesus did that. Maybe Gautama did that. You know, more and more of us are doing that. Millions of us are seeing the shard, are seeing the, the magenta shard of this totality. We're seeing that. But when we start linking our minds and we start using the best technology we've, we've developed and putting our best tools in and we start embedding, but we start, we start to, to do it as a community, a community mind, we're really reaching up for something. And I think it's for our ascension and I think it's for unity. Because this is all we, we, we cherish. We cherish. We cherish the end of isolation between humans, like we're driving along and we feel isolated. We, we desperately want that to end. We want to come into the total unity. And I think your, your fervent, beautiful desire for that unity is bringing it into being. And Burning Man as an event, as an event itself, and all the synchronicities when you're walking around the playa, that's, a, that's an echo of that. That's that at work already, that synchronicity, because it's driving you through low, low probability things to miraculous things. And as the 21st century rolls along and we do more Burning Mans and more medicine circles and more yoga and more breath work, and we're powering the system up. And fuck McDonald's and fuck, you know, stupid news and, and you know, conflicts and oligarchs. Fuck them. We are the great project of being. We are the priority, and we are what nature is pulling forward. We are it. Everything else is logistics and uh, you know consumerism and trivialities. We need it to support ourselves, but it's not the priority of what humans are about. So I would say to Terence, we we now I believe know what the human enterprise can be all about. We have a clue. We have a clue. So with that, I think uh, I'll, uh, I'll uh, break this down for questions, if there are any, if there are anybody still awake. Yeah, there's a, a whole thing about cosmogenesis that I'm working on now. I'm working in Origin of Life in a fairly powerful model. We just presented it in Japan to the whole community, including two Nobelists in the front row. And it came for visionary endogenous experience and from... The last piece was an ayahuasca vision. And actually in Peru, I presented the Madre. I said, Madre, here's our origin of life model. And it's trillions and trillions of vesicles flowing around and around. But it's just a machine. Where is spirit in it? And the Madre said, watch this. And she rotated the model on the side. Because we've been, we've been tracking this model. I mean, it's been revealed to us how the first cell division, how it life cranked up to the first cell division and she said I'm taking space out and watch the vesicles grow and shrink and pop and grow and shrink and pop and donate their functional polymers to the community to the group and I go whoa but what is spirit and she said what do you call this I said well it looks like sharing to me 
and what is uh, well, what is spirit? And she said, what do you think it is? And I said, well, I feel spirit when I'm in community. And she said, that's what this is. Spirit is community. Even in the mechanical level of of, ad, of, of, of molecular systems dumping their contents. And then she said something really interesting. She said, you monkeys have gotten it all wrong. This Darwinian model is all wrong. You have it backwards. It's not survival of the fittest. It's those that sacrifice themselves to give to the community to allow evolution to occur. Everything that, that doesn't get through the sieve gives, and that's how the world is made and it's a, it's a giving exercise. You've got it backwards, and you need to reorient your civilization away from this survival of the fittest mode. And I go, oh, my God, you know, this is, what, <laughs> this is what happens. So what I'm, I now have to go back to the cosmogenesis thing, and, well, how did the cosmos start? Where was spirit in the cosmos? That's what I'm working on next, and I'm going to make that all prepare and present that to the ineffable again and, it, it's amazing. It's like it immediately talks to you and gives you the answers, you know. So in a sense, those insights, if they can come out with, in story, they can help us reformat our civilization because that was a powerful insight. We're going to base an entire seminar series at Columbia on that one insight next year. Yeah. So thank you. Next uh, question, and I'm checking with Tom on our time. Two more questions. I think somebody had a question on this this side. Way in the back. Speak up. Oh, Tom has oh. the mic. Uh, the mic. Hi, I'm Joe Gananda, and uh, I heard what you said about one of the big challenges going forward is going to be trying to kind of understand how to use these psychedelic tools. You gave an analogy like tugging on your your uh, your coat, waistcoat or something. Um, Pull on the waistcoat. Yeah, so it seems a lot of the research being done uh, either through MAPS or John Hopkins is, is really like therapeutic use of these psychedelics to help people that have some kind of damage and repair them. Are you familiar with anyone doing any kind of recreational, isn't really the, the right word, but kind of like a spiritual use and, and a scientific, not necessarily a clinical way, but a way to try to quantify, hey, if you do this pranayama and this yoga sequence and then you you know, one gram of mushrooms, you're going to have an anxiety reduction effect. But if you do it this way, you'll have a blissful effect. And try to get a model as opposed to just the kind of haphazard randomness that's occurring all around us. I think it's the informal... I've met young people in their 20s that are doing pranayama yoga. They're doing Tibetan yoga. They're doing breath work prior to taking a psychedelic. And they're entering that space so smoothly. They're not, they're not commuting to some location and having the stress of the workday get in the way so that they have to process all the demons. They, they have learned to attach all these techniques together. And, and it's the informal experimenter in their millions that is the pioneering front edge of the science of psychedelics. And I think if you asked Rick, he would say, yeah, that's absolutely the, the truth. By the time we get around to it, we're doing very narrow, specific things to find benefits for health or psychological benefits. But all of you in this room are the scientific pioneers, all of you. you know. And anonymously or non-anonymously, if you share your stories and we collect them, we're building that cyber mind of experience. And it may turn out that there's a, a mixture of breathwork, that you're doing breathwork, pranayana and breathwork on a psychedelic, and you can change the state of your mind. 
so you don't necessarily need the Shulgin chip right now. You have all these tools from 20,000 years of, of human practice to use at the same time, all at once. So mix and match, I think. We're all the pioneers. One more question, I think, and then uh, did we have... Oh, hand is up in here. Those of us who are just oh yeah, for those of us who are um, you know looking to uh, be part of this journey that you're you know you're far into, for those of us who are looking for kind of what do we do? Can you talk a little bit more about the practical um, best things that we can you know use? So we've talked a little bit about about meditation. You've talked about yoga. You've talked about um, ayahuasca. Can you? You know, sort of be a little more specific about where, how can we take it further, you know, from where we are if we're not as far along as you are. What can we do to, you know, be on this path? I think I'm a believer in what Dennis McKenna uh, taught. I'm a really, <clears throat> I'm a deep follower of Dennis's wisdom. And what his wisdom is, is that the plants are the safest, most beautiful teacher, but it's endogenous material. And we heard this also from James O'Rock. James O'Rock had this chart where he had um, endogenous materials, DMT, 5-methoxy DMT, going down that are endogenous in your system, being what's friendly to the system. They tend to be ego-dissolving and vision-forming, all the way down to the really negative things of uh, you know, methamphetamines and cocaines and opiates and down to alcohol, which is an enemy of your system and it's highly toxic and it expands the ego. So that's an amazing chart. So staying in the sort of top end of that chart and doing your work there and realizing that in the endogenous range, you can make it yourself. If you have lucid dreams, I'll give you one little example of a practice that I use uh, that I developed when I was a kid. I would go, if I had a really stimulating day and I'm one of those super intense hyper kids, I'd close my eyes at night and I would see flashes behind my eyelids and I would open up and know the room is dark. The flashes are behind my eyelids. And most of us, I think, just say, oh, I'm just overstimulated. And we kind of try to turn it off. Have anybody seen those, those, that light pattern? Well, you know what? I discovered that's a doorway. That's a doorway. That, for me, is endogenous DMT. It's endogenous stimulants, visionary stimulants in the mind that we've made throughout the day. And so what I learned to do, I don't know, when I was 16, 17, is I, it was like an old-fashioned 1970s television with a VCR. Was, I was raised in the 70s, and I said, okay, there's the screen. I see the fractal washes going across it, and I'm going to wait. I'm going to slow them. And the fractal washes gradually slow. And as they're slowing, I turn off cognitive function, turn off analysis, list-making, anything. And I shut down brain function to allow that so those washes to get into my brain and to not have competition. And then the, the washes slow and stop, and it's usually color blotches appear. Okay, And I say, okay, I'm at the doorway now. So I reach over and I push record. And then I minimize myself into this observer sphere, and it opens to this experience. And it's wow, because natural endogenous substances are now flooding through my brain, and I'm not getting in the way of them. And I would have these tremendous landscapes, entities, 
And then I started using this for science. I started using this to pull story. I was flying over Afghanistan four years ago, and I looked down at a valley, and an endo trip just blasted in of, of how comp- humans came to consciousness in this area. And I just closed my eyes, and it, it's now really happens fast, and I immediately shut myself off to receive, and I pushed the record button. And some of the longer experiences on this, I've had to meditate before, do the breath work, get ready, go in, watch the color patterns, have my notebook on the side, put my headphones on with the music I've chosen. Tomorrow morning, this holotropic breath work here at 10 o'clock, come for it. You can experience this yourself. Holotropic breath work is the real deal. And so I then have my notebook, and it might be a three-hour experience. And I can push the old-fashioned VCR pause button, come out of that trip, and draw and write in the notebook. And I go back in, and sometimes it's moved on a little bit, and I have to ask, why are we in cold water now in the dark? And and the trip tells me we're showing you the beginnings of sexual reproduction or something, if it's a sciencey thing. So that's my practice of of minimizing self, and meditation can do it. And um, I think we can do one more question, uh, then we really have to... I'd love to take this question. Responsibility, and um, when you're talking about like the mega mind, and with all of our consciousnesses together, and we compared it to Burning Man. Now I know here this year we've had major highs and major lows. So if you're looking at that as a computer system and having these minds check in, we're going to have major highs and major lows, especially with those people who are brand new, and they're going to be experiencing this violet energy so how would you suggest interplaying um, policy and guidelines and teaching what it is that we the beginners are able to check in once they hit that baseline this is a this is a, a really beautiful poignant question that actually is to answer this question is to really do the next phase of this work and I'll just quickly address it, I believe it's the shaman's role. That the return of the shaman, the true sayer, the powerful healer to groups of people, they have the skill to do this. We have to, and they're growing everywhere. And when you're sitting in a group, you can have new people, experienced people. We're all at the same level because the shaman's managing the energy. The shaman's pulling your soul up and doing the healing. And and you have a powerful third party that is helping everyone and and that person is giving their all and so the, the new person I watched this happen in Peru with our group we had 35 people and 17 of them were new to the ayahuasca and at the end of those those days this shaman I'd never seen anyone work a room like this this amazing energy and power this man had he, he did individual healings on everyone every night you know, not just parceling them out and everyone was just sitting there on the lawn by the Lukma tree, the thousand-year-old Lukma tree, and saying, we're one. We're one unit. It didn't matter where we started from. So that's another element of this that's growing. It's amazing. It's amazing what's emerging. Don't watch Fox News. Don't listen to, uh, don't listen to uh, the um, Grover. Is it Grover Cleveland that's coming here tomorrow and will be standing here? Just don't... Dover, Grover Norquist, 
I mean, don't even listen to these people. They're they're not part of the great project of being. They're noise. They're freaking noise. You know, get entertained, challenge them. But you guys are already on the project. These guys are. I don't know what they're doing. They're wasting their lives, basically. They're wasting our time. So I think I don't want to waste any more time and allow the, the next panel to come up. So thank you so much for your attention, for coming this late at night. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now do you see why I found it so difficult to describe this talk in the RSS feed? Let's see. In the past 50 minutes, we were treated to thoughts about group consciousness, uh, the connections between Terence McKenna and Sasha Shulgin, a geek's view of the psychedelic experience, quantum psychedelics, the Shulgin ship, the combination of meditation, yoga, and psychedelics, and endogenous tripping. <laughs> it's uh, hard to know where to begin, but I guess that it wouldn't hurt to state the obvious once again, and that is that every person who has a psychedelic experience sees it through the lens of their own personal experience, their prior personal experience. A scientist may try to uh, dissect it to better make sense of what's taking place, and a medicine woman may try to embrace the totality of the experience with a more Gaian focus. But ultimately, ultimately, we all seem to end up in the same place. So there's a lot to take away from what we just heard, but I think that my favorite takeaway quote from this talk is, We are the great project of being. That's really worth thinking about. Actually, uh, there are several other comments that I want to make, but, well, right now it's over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in my office, uh, which is about uh, 32 degrees Celsius, I think. Anyway, it's uh, way too hot for my old computer, which begins to overheat after about an hour. So I've got to get to uh, processing this podcast and get it posted before both my computer and I melt. (laughs) And yes, I can hear our fellow saloners who live in really hot places laughing at what a wimp I am. However, I make no excuses about it. I'm just not a big fan of hot weather, which uh, I guess is probably part of the reason that I haven't been to Burning Man for a while. There, uh, there are two quick announcements, though, before I sign off. Uh, first, if you go to the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you will see the link to a YouTube video of the light show that Tom Riddell was playing in the background for this talk. So you can go back to a couple of those ooh and ah moments in the talk uh, that we just listened to and see what they were ooing and aahing about. Also, uh, a year or so ago, Johns Hopkins conducted a survey of people who had what they considered a bad trip on psilocybin mushrooms. And they are now continuing this investigation and looking for more volunteers to take the survey. Uh, You already have to have taken mushrooms sometime in the past, though. (laughs) You won't get any mushrooms just for taking this survey, but you will be contributing to the advancement of science. Now, if you took the survey last year, please don't do it again. Uh, This is just another chance for those who didn't hear about it last time. And uh, while I had to search my own memory to find a bad mushroom trip, I realized that I actually did have one, and so I took the survey last year myself. It 
doesn't take very long, and the questions are quite interesting, I think. So just go to the link in our program notes, or right now you can surf on over to www.shroomsurvey.com. That's S-H-R-O-O-M-S-U-R-V-E-Y, all one word, shroomsurvey.com. And uh, why don't you add your voice to this important research? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>